0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Winding through the week, pushing. Weekend's coming. Oh, it's like a hamster wheel sometimes. But we got a great show planned for you. We're going to be talking about relationships, childhood, but... um. Childhood trauma. So a little bit of a trigger content warning. It's going to be applicable to everyone. I try to make every topic applicable to those that maybe aren't parents or don't have children that are in relationships of different kinds, romantic, non-romantic. We're going to be talking about uh, things that lead to abuse, right? That in our childhood might set us up as adults to have to work through and undo. Uh, We talk a lot about abuse as being a physical thing, but there's a lot of emotional, psychological components. We'll talk about that. Also what they're calling distracted parenting. We're gonna be talking about a big story and research piece from The Atlantic that talks about how parents aren't as available as they used to be and the damage that that's creating because of parents' own phone and technology use. We tend to talk just about the kids, it's about the parents as well. And uh, we're also going to be talking about some important research that shows uh, the physical impacts of being in a long-term romantic relationship, how it actually benefits your health. And the numbers were quite shocking. The research is really robust, so um, stick around for that. But um, Uh, you know, always, always a zinger. This one's a beautiful one. So the religious, um, every now and then some of the really diehard conservative ones have some punchy things. A pastor (laughs) uh, went viral. He came out saying that um, women need to work on being trophy wives, work on being thin, that that is, that is what a man deserves. That's what God wants. And understandably, people were like, I don't see that in the Bible. I don't know about that. So that went, that went fire. I love whenever someone comes out with this like really toxic masculinity, sexist based comment about what religion or the Bible implies is demanded or necessary from a woman. And it tends to often be about not just emotional labor or labor at home, but I love when it skews into that sexist concept of um, aesthetics and beauty. You know what I mean? Like, God forbid we let people just be human beings who naturally age and their bodies change, you know? And we don't talk about be a good person. Instead, we talk about look like an attractive person. Um, So I'm glad people are pushing back on that. That's kind of a hot mess. Um, And then also I was looking at an article about, um, you know, Rudy Giuliani has become such a handful. I remember when I was living back in Manhattan and he was running New York and he started just really, quote unquote, cleaning things up. But what he was really doing was removing all the beauty, fun, creative parts of New York City. Was never a fan of his, marched in the streets against his administration. And he's only gotten more ridiculous. But his daughter, I I, I don't know what you guys read news-wise, but his daughter came out talking about her own um, romantic sex life. And it it was quite fascinating and interesting. And it brought up this whole topic of how some people like to date couples. She's in a relationship herself, um, but she's talked about how she likes to be brought in and dating couples. And, you know, I just love the idea that we're always talking about all these different relational styles and not everyone's actively working from a single place towards, you know, committed monogamous relationships. Some people are actively working to get into someone else's committed long term relationship. (laughs) But I think the humor in it was that it's Giuliani's daughter because this is someone who just runs in such a conservative circle that I thought, like, man. You never know who your children are gonna be. And sometimes people are gifted the children that really need to help wake them up and transform them. Um, Also wanted to share with you, this is a little horrifying. Always in service of moving away from consumerism, we know that the more you purchase, the happier you, you don't become. But that becomes a route that a lot of people use to try to bring some joy in their life. Sometimes it's fine. And it was looking at statistics about our clutter. But like when I really read into some of this, I was shook, listen to this. On average, there are 300,000 items in the average American home. 300,000 items. Now, of course, that means things like spoons and scissors, but that's a big number. Um, where was this other number that I loved? Dun, 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 dun. Ready for this one? British research found that the average 10-year-old, ready for this? The average 10-year-old owns 238 toys, but only plays with 12 daily. And that also kind of extends to like our wardrobe. There's a stat on that. Check this out. The average American family spends $1,700 on clothes annually and throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. What are we doing? Not just environmental waste, financial waste and clutter. Stay with that for a second, 65 pounds a year. Our homes have more television sets than people. And those television sets are turned on for more than a third of the day, about eight hours a day. Eight hours a day, those TVs are on. That is a lot. Try to track in the course of a day how often the televisions are on in your home. Studies also indicate we consume twice as many material goods today as we did 50 years ago. Double. What are we buying? What is it we're buying? (laughs) Oh my gosh, and I'll, I'll close out on this one. Shopping malls outnumber high schools. <laughs> Ready for this? Women will spend more than eight years of their lives shopping. Eight years of their lives shopping. Now, of course, that's also the gendered. Women are also traditionally responsible for shopping for everyone's clothing, sometimes including their husband, if they're in a hetero marriage, also for doing the grocery shopping and odds and ends, so that I understand that, but eight years of their lives. We could be doing a lot. We could be doing a lot more at that time. You know what I mean? That's why we gotta uh, change gender roles. All right, coming up next, we're gonna talk about why a long-term happy, that's the key word there, long-term happy romantic relationship actually has vast, 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 vast vast positive consequences on your physical health. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel q and radio.com. All right, we're back and we're talking about long-lasting, long-term relationships and the impact they have on our longevity and also our physical health, uh, mental health as well, but physical health. And it's interesting research, uh, pretty consistent, and it's very gendered. And that that is born out of uh, gender roles. And so I'll kind of circle back to that in a minute, what I mean by that. But it's it's not inherently needing to be this way. But before we dive deep, let's look at some of the research. This is coming out of three different articles I looked at, but mainly the Washington Post did a story on this I thought it was really beautiful. So basically, check this out. So people that are in committed romantic relationships, and of course, <laughs> the quality of those relationships matter. The research doesn't really look at what those terms mean. They just sling around words like committed and romantic. But the quality of that relationship matters. If it's a toxic, problematic relationship, then we're not talking about that. We're talking about the ones where the couples have done the work. Uh, it feels very secure. It feels very safe. There's a lot of trust. It's linked to a 49% lower mortality risk. Like really sit with that. And this is a massive study. Being in a committed romantic relationship cuts your mortality risk in about half. And we'll talk about why that is. Um, This is a quote. I thought this was really interesting because this is pretty punchy. The magnitude of the effects of marital happiness on health are comparable to those found for dietary recommendations like eating more fruits and vegetables. So basically what they're saying is that uh, the, the level of nutrition in your diet is a massive indicator on your physical health and your mental health, of course. And we talk nonstop about that because your body needs vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals and antioxidants in order to both function at a high level but also protect against things like heart disease, cancers all of that right okay so that's powerful so when they say that the same impact is created on your health as marital happiness yeah you want to you want to take notice of that now what i want to remind you is we need to be very thoughtful about what we do with what that means. And again we're gonna come back to that because I want to just get through some of this research to really just drive home why why we mean more than just it makes you happy like this is this is really robust research. Um, it also suggests wait for, wait for this that being in a happy romantic relationship, and again, the key word is not just being in a relationship it has to be a happy one. like that's the caveat that matters, right um, may lower the risks of getting. Alzheimer's disease, developing diabetes, dying after heart bypass surgery, and also the lower levels of pain and fatigue from breast cancer treatment. And this is based on an analysis. Um, So really sit with that. Those that have never married have a 60% higher risk of dying of cardiovascular disease than their married counterparts. That's really Of A big, 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 big percentage number. Uh, Married is associated, being married is associated with lower rates of depression. Uh, I wanted to just see if there's anything else I wanted to throw in there. Okay, so let's talk about what that means and why that is though. One of the number one reasons is a multitude of things and that's that relationships provide distraction. They provide in a happy relationship added happiness if you're maybe having a hard day or a neutral day. They give us support. Also, I think what's left out of the research is maybe you have a partner that's going to you know, help you co-manage your health and would have you go to the doctor or get a follow-up at the doctor. Or maybe it's also about having double income or a higher income. So then you also have maybe better insurance and able, ability to pay for the meds. Or or also being in a, a happy relationship means, again, you have two incomes or at least one solid income, and that means you are living in an area with less environmental pollution, or you're not living in an area that has food deserts, which are areas where none of the stores really have access or sell quality, nutritious foods. Like the study can't look for that, the correlations that are tied to it. and And we wanna look at that. Because we know that socioeconomics matters and that's left out of studies like this, that when you're in a relationship, you at least have one income most likely, or maybe even two. And single people have one income or zero. They don't have anyone helping co-manage their health. Like all of those factors matter. So I don't want it to just be get into a happy relationship and all as well. Like those pieces are woven in there. Um, we also know from studies, we've talked about this a long time ago, women do better after divorce And there's some of the gendered part of this research because a lot of women, if they're working out of the home, they're also working in the home and they have double the labor or they're working in the home and their labor is never off the clock because they're expected to be working while the husband's gone and then also when he gets back. And so when they divorce, a woman has less to do. She has one less person to worry about and this is why it's gendered, where the man now has lost someone who did a lot of labor and work for him. And that's why women do better after divorce. It's easier, the life gets simpler. But again, the research then, look at the inverse, that not only if you're single, but also if you're in an unhappy relationship, not only will you get none of those benefits, right? But it's also going to amplify a lot of the negatives because What does it mean to go through some of those things that they referenced, like breast cancer, heart disease and all that, while also constantly stressed or depressed because you're in an unhealthy relationship? So what I really want people to walk away with learning is number one, if you're gonna be in a relationship, work on being in a really healthy one so you can achieve those benefits. Number two, leave if it's just toxic and negative, because not only do you not get the benefits, but you also get the deficits, right? to feeling more stressed, more miserable. And number three, we wanna get away from traditional gender roles because that's why people do better or worse post-divorce and we can shift the roles while in the relationship, thereby increasing and enhancing everything. So it's always about the happiness because we also know from the studies that children do better in happy homes or in single parent homes versus how poorly they do and how poor their mental health is if they're in a double parent home, but it's a toxic, miserable marriage that they have to live their lives within. It's interesting. You know, we are relational beings, right? Our mental health is so so tied to the quality of our relationships and studies like that just show how tied we are to, you know, our physical health as well. Uh, coming up next though, we're going to talk about self-care quickly. A lot of people are singing those words down. We're gonna, uh, slinging those words around. What does self-care look like specifically from though a psychological emotional perspective? Because just this week I, uh, was working with some clients and this topic came up and they were like, huh? So we'll be doing that and then slide into some DMs. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and I wanted to just do a little quick self-care moment. Talking about the psychological, emotional self-care. We're all familiar with a lot of the physical, take a bath, light some candles. <laughs> I talked a lot about how I do music therapy, which is I put on my big clunky headphones, sit in a quiet room and just listen to music, letting it drop me deeper into some feelings, feeling it in my whole body, and just kind of self-soothing, coping, healthy form of dissociation, checking out from any worries or concerns. Really beautiful thing, but what does psychological self-care look like? So um, I wanna talk more about this because I think people still don't understand, I'll ask new clients entering my practice what kinds of self-care they practice. And um, a lot of people don't have an answer. They don't really know. They, they think it's something that's for women or it requires purchasing something, or it's about candles, and it's like, no, not at all. They're, we have to talk more about the, the psychological, emotional. So first thing is, it's about boundaries at times, and that means sometimes saying no. And that can be one of the most transformative and impactful ways of taking care of yourself is to say no, to say no to things that don't feel right or feel good to you or saying no to things that don't sound fun. That was a new model I developed where when I'm asked to do something professionally, I first I ask myself, does it even sound fun? Is that aligned with my ethics? And uh, how's that impact my mental health, right? Like that's the number one question. Whatever you're asked to do, I don't care who, where, what, when, and why, uh, whatever it is. First question is, how's that it impact my mental health? And let that direct you. And you don't always have to say yes. It's okay to say, I'm sorry, I can't. Please reach out to someone else who can, you know? Whether it's a phone call or a request going to someone's wedding, I don't care what it is. Something from your boss, it's okay to protect your mental health. And anyone that really cares about you will understand and validate and legitimize that. So that's another good way to check in on those around you. So say no. Um, and also what, what's paired with that is asking for what you need. I don't want people to mind read. I don't want people to assume. I want people to ask, ask for what you need. Hey, I could really use a low key night tonight. Hey, you know what, I'm gonna stop this conversation. I'm not in the right place to be having this right now. Or hey, I'm gonna have to come back and let you know the answer to that. I need to think about it. You're allowed to ask for what you need. You're allowed to set boundaries. And that often means letting down and disappointing people, but that's okay. That's actually how you know that you're setting down those boundaries. We, uh, we want to be around healthy people that are willing to deal with their frustration. I would love us to live in a world where someone says, bummer, but thank you so much for taking care of yourself. I say that because I'm so thankful, even if it lets me down or disappoints me to see people setting boundaries and taking care of themselves, asking for their needs. We don't always have to be liked. And that's a real big cultural thing is accepting that not everyone has to like us. Not, we're not for everyone. I talk about that even in terms of like my work and and social media, Loveline, my books, my work, my do or the work I do. It's not for everyone. It doesn't have to be. That's okay. It's for specific people. And I've even said that about people commenting on social media. If, if a post isn't something that you agreed with or liked, keep going. It's not for you. Maybe their page isn't for you. Maybe that topic isn't for you. That's okay. Not everything has to be for everyone. Not every movie, not every television show. Um, also dropping the expectations you have on yourself. That's... That's important too. Sometimes we can't do what everyone else is doing. Why? We have this thing called psychology and everyone's is different. The same thing, the same expectations we put on one person cannot be applied to everyone. And you have to sometimes advocate for that. I know that they're able to do that. I'm not, I'm not them. My needs are important as well and my mental health and that doesn't work for me. And so sometimes that changes week by week, sometimes day by day. Sometimes I'll do, uh, on a Monday, I'll be able to accomplish more and on another day, based on the shift in context of my life, the expectations have to drop severely. Sometimes I have to cancel an entire day because I'm not at my best or I'm dealing with some depression or a lot of anxiety, right? You have to be able and willing to do that. Accepting that you can't be the same thing for everyone, we get that. But also again, looking at the health of the people around you and in your life, that's a really important part of self-care. How healthy are those around me? What kind of impact do they have on me? Remember that before, during, and after. How do I feel before I see them or when I see them calling on the phone? How do I feel during? How do I feel when I'm with them, right? And then when I walk away, that's the after. How do I feel after I've spent time with them or been on the phone with them? Really looking at that, that is an integral part of our mental health. You cannot disconnect and separate those two. That's huge. And also, you know, the the relational piece, oh my gosh, if nothing else, and we don't use that enough as an assessment tool, right? We just talk more about symptoms. But we should also be saying, what is the quality and health of the relationships with which you participate in? We can't just be in mental health talking about symptoms, right? But these are all the important parts. You know, Saying no when you need to say no, asking for what you need, setting limits, dropping the expectations upon yourself, knowing that you can't be everything to everyone. This whole idea of psychology, everyone has different needs. That comes up in any context, education, parenting, at work. You cannot have the same expectations you have on one person, on everyone else. Everyone's needs are different. People have different abilities. People have different neurologies. People have different mental health diagnoses. People have different things going on in their lives. Maybe they lost someone that day. Maybe they have ADHD. Maybe they have a physical disability, right? There's so many different pieces. But we want to, we like conformity and uniformity. So we just want everything to be cookie cutter. Just doesn't work like that. It's called relationality. It's called mental health. It's called people. I'll keep reminding you though. But the question I want you to walk away with always asking is how does that request or how's that person or how's that situation? How does it impact my mental health? That's the best compass and the best guide. Coming up next, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. If you got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. And as always, check out past episodes of Loveline by going to wearechannelq.com. Coming up next, DMs. Stick around, join us. Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back now. It's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Tonight's DM asked, hey, Dr. Chris, my boyfriend last night asked if I would be into a threesome. We've been dating for about six months <clears throat> and I kind of got taken aback when he asked that. Not really sure how to respond. If he wants to explore sexually, maybe I had hoped we could do that in private first before introducing someone else. Is that wrong or should I go along with it because it's something he trusted me with? Okay, a couple things. I always remind people actually that when someone discloses who they are sexually to us with us, it's an act of trust. It's an act of intimacy building. We want to honor it as such. And before we get into our feelings and what we're open to and how, what we think about it, your first response should always literally be, or imply like, Hey, thank you. Thank you for trusting me with that. We live in a slut shaming culture. We live in a sex phobic culture. People don't feel safe in all their relationships to really be who they are sexually. Gender prevents us from doing that because, you know, guys are supposed to be this way. Women are supposed to be that way. People sling around the made up word sex addiction to shame people that are having more sex than they're comfortable hearing about, which is also what the word slut. Means you're having sex that I'm uncomfortable hearing about, so I'm going to shame you for it versus me acknowledging my sexual, you know, immaturity and anxiety. And there's so much in there toxic masculinity, gender roles, it's a mess. So when someone's confident in expressing and embodying their sexuality fully, especially with a romantic partner, say thank you. Like, hey, thanks for telling me about that, you know? So if your partner says, hey, I want a threesome, hey, you know, thank you for letting me know more about who you are sexually. And for some people, they're like, oh, that sounds weird, but that's really what it should be first. And then you to respond, hey, thanks for sharing that with me. Like, I'm always here. Cause this is the thing. All conversations are also communication as to how safe you are what kind of partner you are. And you wanna, you wanna always communicate your partner, like you can come and tell me things, you know? I'll never shame you for that. And then you follow up and say, however, like a threesome is not something I've ever really been interested in, you know? Or you say, yes, but here's what I would want it to look like or what I would need. You know what I mean? It doesn't, when someone shares something with you, you can hold space non-judgmentally and that doesn't mean you're interested or open to it, right? So first that's, you know, you applaud and then you move in and say, here's what I would need for that to be comfortable or "Or no, that's not something I'm interested in. What does that mean? Because remember, these requests don't mean now or tonight or this week. You can say, let me think about it for a while or let's come back to it. You know, it's, it can be an ongoing conversation. Not everything is decided right away about whether or not we're moving or having another child or whatever it is. Like, it's okay to say, I need to think about that for a while and to process it, talk to others, read some resources, figure out what it might need to look like for you, or the opposite. You know, you say that's just something I have thought a lot about, and it's nothing Nothing I've been willing to do. But what I will throw out there for people is sometimes it's a literal move for something that can actually instead be symbolic, right? And and what that, what that means is that we can symbolically sometimes explore bringing in someone else, right? And how we do that is a couple ways one. And this is all only able to be done with a safe, mature partner that is not going to shame you. And just bringing up these topics, you start to get a sense of whether or not they're that partner. So I want you all, all the listeners to be better. But the way to symbolically bring it in, and sometimes that's all we need, is number one, sometimes just dirty talk. You know, when you're having sex with your partner, let them talk about things they'd love to see or do, or others they'd love to see you with. But again, that's done in the context of the safety of, we're just doing it in fantasy. We're just doing it to, you know, spike our arousal. It's not necessarily, it's not a request or Something I'm going to go do. And that's where the trust is built. That fantasy is beautiful because it's fantasy. It's not, a fan- someone fantasizing about something does not mean they're going to or need to or want to go do it in the world. So let me just get that out of the way. No, that's not the first step. That doesn't lead to that always at all. <clears throat> People that have impulse control and boundaries, they go nowhere with it. But Discussion in sex can be something that's really hot. Or another way to bring it in safely, for those that are uncomfortable with the real enactment of it, is to watch porn. Porn viewing with your partner is another way to participate with others and to bring others in psychologically. You're watching them watch the porn. You're watching it together. You can talk about it. That's a way to bring them in the room, just like the dirty talk. You know, and sometimes it doesn't need to go any further than that cuz once you climax, once you orgasm and you move out of the sexual state, arousal state, sometimes people are are good, they're like that was hot and then they're like what's for dinner, you know? And so just remember, not everything has to be literally acted out, sometimes it can just be symbolic, but we want to be safe partners where we can talk about and process these things, you know? All right, y'all. Coming up next, uh, trigger warning, content warning. We're going to be talking about childhood abuse, uh, ways that it occurs, that is often underrecognized or acknowledged, and uh, ways it can impact us as adults. It's a really important topic so that we can be better and we can better learn about ourselves and those around us. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back and we're talking about a heavy topic, childhood trauma. Um, now again, uh, when I when I enter into a discussion about these topics, I'm very thoughtful because I don't ever want us to victim blame. And what I mean by saying that is that, again, we put a lot of expectations on parents to be better than any other person. That somehow the idea or desire or whatever occurs that leads someone into giving birth or bringing a child into their home, that that magically means that they've been educated and, and matured or are more mature or done the work or gone through therapy or, or whatever it is. And that's, that's absolutely not the case, right? So it's a dual perspective that we're entering, which is when we are looking back at the way we were raised by our parents, you have to understand intergenerational trauma and the transmission of that, right? That not everyone's even aware of. Or whatever traumas your parent went through before, during, or after getting married or giving birth or whatever it is, all that's in there. But at the same time, we do it to hold people accountable. And so it's both. We have to have empathy for what must have happened that made people live their lives the way they did or parent the way they did while also holding them accountable to trying to be better, which is why I say to parents, if you're going to enter into that, you gotta take that seriously. I say that even about romantic relationships. I think we need to take that more seriously too, how we impact others and how our unhealed parts and our wounds become theirs or we traumatize them from those places. So yeah, if you're gonna date someone and bring yourself in their life, before you do, Ask yourself, what am I bringing in? But do the same thing if you're going to parent. What 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 are my issues or struggles? What's my personality style? What am I going to be bringing into their life and having them maybe later have to heal from? We have to take that seriously. I think we're just a little too, I, I, I don't know. We just, no one brings that up. Um, no one says, have you done any self-assessment or therapy? Like we, we have premarital therapy, which... I don't know anyone who's ever done that. And I think that that's a really beautiful, smart thing. I wish we had pre-parenting therapy where it was really targeted at looking at what do you need to do so as to be prepared to really be a caregiver for someone. But none of that occurs. And I understand that that opens up the whole can of worms around access to health care and all that. And yeah, that's real. Um, And insurance does not cover or have such a diagnosis. So we do need to make systemic institutional changes to support that. But I just wanted to add that. That's like a disclaimer on the front end of this. We're going to dive in and look at what childhood trauma looks like. And it's not just physical abuse. That's the very overt, you know, easier to see red flag. But I just wanted to hold space that it's a very nuanced thing that we're about to talk about. So... Having said that, let's talk about it. And, I, and I'm saying this so as to help people better identify maybe why they are the way they are, but also to help some parents and caregivers understand, hey, if I hear myself doing some of these things, I need to stop. This might show me where my work is, right? Because you know, there's always so many different ways to hear these topics. So again, we're talking about things that are more than just physical abuse because childhood trauma, the psychological, the emotional, comes from places that are not just the physical. So the first thing is, just presence as a caregiver. Are you being a caregiver? And again, feel free, if you don't have children, you're not a caregiver and don't wanna be, feel free to apply this to your role as a loved one, as someone's romantic partner or marital partner. Like, this is real too. Um, do you leave the child for them to fend for themselves? Do you provide security and safety? I love that question. How safe do you make your child feel? How safe do you make your partner feel? Are you someone they can go to? right? How, how much security do you create? Also, do you validate their feelings? We talk about this concept called adultism, which is adults often think that they don't need to be accountable to children or that children's feelings don't matter. And often adults and parents will invalidate a child saying, don't feel that, or you don't have a right to feel that, or don't talk to me that way. And it's like a child's not allowed to feel anything. A child's never allowed to be frustrated with an adult. We make it seem as though a child's not allowed to ever have any accountability from an adult, but we, they should. And the same thing with partners. Are you the kind of partner where you don't ever listen to your partner's criticisms or concerns? Children have to be able to reflect back to us in their own way that maybe we're the difficult one. And that does matter. Otherwise, how do we then think they're going to develop into an adult that knows how to ask for their needs to be met and set boundaries? That all starts in childhood. And again, in our romantic relationships, it's reinforced or it's dismantled, right? And that's why, it, that's why all this stuff matters. And that's why I'm allowing these to be two parallel processes. Now, this next one is actually very fascinating. Um, so it's my own personal fascination with this, because this is where some of the way we, ways we parent or act as caregivers is very um, culturally specific, culturally confined. Uh, and what I mean is, in America, we are obsessed with what we call toxic individualism. We are obsessed with just worrying about how it impacts me, what it does for me, what is in it for me right? And we're obsessed with this idea of self-soothing where we we used to believe, and some people still sadly believe this, that children need to learn how to self-soothe. Well, yes, they do. But the way that they get there is by having an adult available to help co-regulate, to teach them to self-soothe. So in the past, we used to say, let children cry it out. They're, and then when they finally wind up sh- quieting down, ah, oh, they've self-soothed. No, they're not. We know from research What they've done is they've been traumatized and they've given up. They know that there's no one there to help them meet their needs and they've given up. Children at that age, at young ages, don't self-soothe. It's all co-regulation. And so when they finally quiet down or stop crying out, often that's because they've given up it's a dissociative state. There's so much attachment, interpersonal neurobiological research on that. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to keep talking about the really difficult, heavy topic of childhood trauma. So it's a little bit of a content trigger warning. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, so we're back and uh, just a little bit of a content trigger warning. We're talking about emotional, psychological forms of childhood trauma. And so it's really hard for a lot of people to hear. And I was telling everyone, look, these are things that I want everyone to be self-reflective about. Am I, as a parent or caregiver, someone who does these things? Am I a child who was on the receiving end of this? And this will help me better understand why I move through the world and feel the way I do. But also if you're not a parent or caregiver and won't ever be or don't wanna be, think about your relationship to people you're in relationships with, whether romantic or otherwise. Do you create these situations and dynamics? Because these are throughout our lifespan and that's what's so fascinating the needs are pretty similar as an adult or a child. We still want to feel safe. We want to feel like our needs are valid. We want to feel like there's someone there for us. We want to feel like people are our companions and supports and can help co-regulate, right? So we 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 ended, last session, last session, I feel like I'm at my office, oh <laughs> my God. We ended last segment uh, talking about self-soothing and how here in America, specifically, we are obsessed with the idea, idea of self-soothing, where in other cultures, they parent from a more attachment-based style. And there are people that advocate, like I do, for attachment-based parenting here in the States, which is being with your child as often as possible, co-sleeping. Most cultures, 75% of cultures co-sleep. It's in America where we're like, now nah, they need to sleep separate. They got to learn to be on their own. And then we rip them apart out of our lives too soon. And when a child's crying and not ready to separate, the work isn't about forcing. The work is about finding a way to honor that. But that's another topic. But yeah, so we, children don't learn to self-soothe. It takes a long time. They need co-regulation. And so we want to be there for them when they're upset. We want to let them know that you can turn to people. People are there for you. What we don't want to do is instead have them deny, minimize, or escape. You know, perfect examples. if a child comes home from school and they had a rough day, the answer isn't, oh honey, it'll be fine, it'll get better, here, eat these cookies. Or funny, honey, it'll be fine, go upstairs and play your video game. You are literally communicating to them, not only am I not here for you to help process feelings, not only are feelings bad and at all costs, don't lean into them, but find a way to deny and push away, but you're also giving them the idea that the wider world isn't there either because they they, um, apply that, right? And so what we wanna do is the opposite. When someone's upset, at any age, at whatever it is, whatever age or whatever topic, the first idea, you, the first concept you want to imply is not only am I here, but your feelings are valid and people will be there as evidenced by me being here. Tell me more about that. That should be the response. Honey, I'm sorry your day was so hard. Tell me more. I'm here to listen. I'm not going to jump in and fix. I'm not going to shame. I'm not going to tell you not to feel that way. I'm not going to tell you to deny, ignore, and minimize by, you know, read. go read a book, go play a video game, go eat something. Instead, I'm going to help you get other forms of coping mechanisms because at times we can can distract sometimes that is healthy to say you know what I don't want to sit in this I don't want to feel this again right sometimes sharing doesn't feel constructive and we do go eat something instead to bring a little joy and pleasure we go play a video game or watch a movie to distract that is a higher level of coping but we're talking about the idea that both parties need to learn how to be able to be available and sit in emotions And, and again it gets gendered where we are more willing to afford that to people that are females we are not willing to give that to men right we we tell them more so to toughen up right we don't really work with them and teach them that it's okay to sit in feelings especially between men that's why two male friends or two male siblings or a father and a son it's very powerful even a mother to a son it's very powerful to say tell me how you feel to tell you th- to tell say i love you and to sit there and listen i still am blown away when i see that on television blown away when i see two men able to have these really beautiful, serious, heavy conversations. Um, I was watching it last night, rewatching the show Parenthood. Such a stunning show, so emotionally present. And I was watching the two brothers just be so emotionally available to each other. It's like really stunning and shocking. And it shouldn't be shocking, but it is because we are so distant from that in our culture. Um, and again, that just goes to what is also a childhood trauma and becomes an adult trauma, often left unhealed, is when we feel like we have to hide our true selves and we can't be authentic because we were raised by parents that thought we had to be a certain way, uh, live a certain way, live in a way that pleases them. And that's all a movement away from our truth and all our authenticity. And that's very traumatic, very traumatizing because then we don't move into adulthood feeling like we are okay the way we are. uh, We are okay the way we are. And that's really what the goal of caregivers should be is you're fine the way you are whether the world accepts that or not, like you're okay as you are, because often the issue isn't the child, it's the world. The world isn't willing or ready to accept the creative, diverse ways that some people are and move through the world, right? Um, And again, we talk about that adultism, which is that idea where adults put themselves first as though children don't have needs or aren't allowed to have needs. And uh, when parents prioritize themselves over the children, we have to be thoughtful about letting children's needs matter too, when and letting them have a say in things. We can't disempower and then think magically when it's time for them to be empowered or to have a sense of self that it just naturally occurs. It's like sex ed. If we don't talk about and teach these things, you can't magically assume that when they're ready to have sex, they just understand communication, uh, verbiage, safer sex practices. It just doesn't work like that. And that very much happens with just being able to feel like our needs matter again. So, 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 so necessary. Um, Feeling like also you have to earn love. And I see that in a lot of adult couples as well. You know, your job isn't to please your partner all the time. Your job isn't to please your parent. Your job is to learn how to be yourself. And sometimes in a committed long-term adult relationship, we disappoint and let down our partners. And that's okay because sometimes it's in service of who we are, what we need, and we put our needs first. It's okay to put your needs first, even as a child. It's okay to let your parents down and disappoint them with some of your choices your choices shouldn't be about making them happy. And so many people get hung up on that. And part of moving into adulthood is reclaiming some of that power that maybe was taken away from you as a child. And that's why I see adults struggle with that in their adult relationships. They've never been given an opportunity to say no, you know, and to set a boundary or to say, I'm sorry, I know this is gonna let you down, but there's something important I have to do, right? And that's something I teach a lot of parents and adults, you know, boundary setting. Uh, we're gonna take a break and we're gonna come back and talk about something that's really both interesting and disturbing, but if we can catch it now, it doesn't have to go as far. And it's basically what they're calling distracted parenting. But again, this applies very much to romantic relationships and friendships as well. So stick around for that. This was actually kind of shocking. It was shocking for me to see this and it made me get a little introspective about myself. You're listening to line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. all right we're back and uh we're kind of continuing our conversation around parenting but it's not about parenting it's really about relational presence and skills through the entry point of parenting and this applies to everyone um, as all of the topics I share do, I try to make everyone feel kind of brought in. So th- this is from The Atlantic, and I wanted to dissect this because I thought this was really powerful, and this actually stopped me in my tracks because I was thinking about this in relationship to just how I move through my world in-, in relationship to my phone use. So it's about the dangers of distracted parenting. So basically what it's looking at is how we we have a lot of research on the negative impacts And positive, because there's a lot of positive impacts of technology on child socialization and development by far. It helps them build community. It normalizes diverse, creative ways of being. People don't feel alone. It can be very educational and informative. But, so we, we know, right, we know that our, our phones, smartphones, technology, it's led to um, an increase in car accidents and, and unfortunately some fatalities, right? We talk about, you know, making your car a no-phone zone. Uh, it can impact your sleep, right? We talk about the screens and it arousing your brain. You're trying to fall asleep. That's not the right way to do it. Um, all sorts of that stuff, right? And, but what we don't talk about, what this article is really pointing out is that although it impacts the kid's development, <clears throat> parents are not able to be as present in some of the necessary ways to their children. I and mean, it gets a little neurobiological because they're distracted um, by their phones. And I'll talk about what that means. But basically, this uh, this article is looking at how there's an increase in... Um, parents' presence with their children, that parents are spending more time now with their children. Right now, you know, if we're looking at the pandemic, that's because you maybe they're working from home. The children are also maybe at home and not going to school. But what they're talking about is it's only an increase in physical presence, that parents have more of a physical presence than they did historically, but they're actually less emotionally attuned. And that's because of everyone's cell phone use. Because we talked about this on another show about how, as in, in a relationship, you wanna be available to shared experiences and how if we're on our phones, one person's playing a video game, we're not having a shared experience. We're not both involved in the same topic or the same movie. We're not accessible. We can't just turn and, and comment on what we're watching or get their attention. They're distracted, they're disconnected. But what happens when children and parents are both doing that and there's not a lot of time to quote unquote emotionally bump into each other right? And that's why we talk about the beauty of the old school sitting down at the dinner table to eat together is you can pick up on cues. You can start conversations, keep conversations going. But if everyone's on their technology, parents included, well, then there's no there's no lack. There's no space or downtime from which you're motivated to connect. We're distracted and we're busy. Hours can go by. But when we're not on our phones, there's lack. And that lack is what makes us say, hey, come spend time with me. Let's go for a walk or how was your day? That loneliness, that lack, that absence, that's also what makes people reach out to friends. But if you're home all day and you're on your phone, you're not feeling that motivation to do so. So again, we're more physically present, but we're less emotionally attuned. Now, specifics to this is that children's young brains are developing relationally. And parents and children have a formula to connection, disconnection, right? And that the screen time is getting in the way of that. And they're saying today's preschoolers, preschoolers spend more than four hours a day facing a screen. That's wild, just that stat. And the issue we're talking about is called continuous partial attention. And that harms us and it harms the kids. And basically what it's saying is, and I'll just give you a quote, the new parent interactional style can interrupt and the new style they mean being on technology, the new parental interaction style can interrupt an ancient emotional cueing system whose hallmark is responsive communication. And that's the basis of human learning. Hear that word, responsive, meaning I'm available, they're available to connect and to respond. And that's, a, a, a child development experts call it a didactic signaling system. And that creates the basic architecture of the brain. The brain is a social organ and its health and its growth socially is determined on the relationships they have as a child. And so it's not just, it'll be fine on its own. No, the quality of the relationships that a child has, especially the younger it is, with the parents help develop a healthy social brain that sees connection and intimacy as not overwhelming, but as a pleasant thing that it seeks, right? And it's able to tolerate and, and, can, and handle that. And that's part of why sometimes as an adult, we're learning how to handle intimacy and closeness and all of that. But the parent being on their phone is getting in the way of their ability to do what they call the serve and return style of communication, which is an important building block of a child's brain's architecture, right? It's a conversational duet where you talk, they're there, they hear you, they respond, and that's getting cut off. And so we're really getting in the way of and disrupting normal child brain development because parents are unavailable or distracted with their phones versus being present. And we need them to have that what they're calling the emotionally resident adult child queuing system. It's interrupted by them picking up their phone mid-conversation, being too buried to be present in IG swiping or whatever it is. And so it just speaks to when someone's talking to you, put your phone down and don't pick it back up. Create time when you're not even on your phone so you can be related to or someone can find a moment to get your attention and connect. But people will sometimes bypass doing that if they see you actively on your phone. They'll just come back later or not come back again. So we have to create moments of nothingness and lack where people can connect and will connect. We have to create more shared experience where we're having an experience together by playing a game, going for a walk, cooking, talking, watching a movie. We're accessible, we're having the same experience, we can talk about it. We need to build more of that in, which is why things like having dinner all together or going for a nighttime walk, or a family board game, or a relational board game, because this is about partners as well romantically. I'll keep talking about this, but again, technology, it's not all bad, but it's definitely not all good. All right, y'all, coming up next, we're gonna be sliding into those DMs. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. all right we're back and now it's time to slide into those dms sliding into the dms all right text question says hey dr chris i'm having issues with my best friend we've been best friends for over 15 years we grew up together that's a long beautiful amount of time she's changing lately and i'm not sure how to address it with her she's getting more introverted scared to go out less talkative I wanna ask her what's wrong, but I'm afraid she'll shut me out completely. Is there an easy way to ask her what's going on? Whenever someone says, what's the easy way? I already know that they have a lot of anxiety and they wanna find a way that doesn't make them anxious, but there's no there's no un- anxiety inducing way to have difficult conversations. And, and people will say like, what's the easiest way to break up with someone? It's like, there isn't, <laughs> it's difficult. It's gonna have to be difficult. You're stepping into something difficult. That is adult responsibility for relationships. It is not easy to have difficult conversations. That's why they're called difficult conversations conversations and if there's an easy way you would have found it naturally so it is not going to be easy for you apparently very intimate transparent emotional conversations are hard for you so there is no easy answer but you just do it but you do it from a place of love and that's what I want to remind people we don't diagnose our friends we don't blame them we don't criticize we ask questions are you okay are you okay do you feel as though you can talk to me if you need to You know, you make it about you. And maybe your friend will be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then you can say, you just seem different sometimes. I miss miss the person you used to be, is everything okay? And if the answer is I'm fine, then you accept that. And that's what's hard because what's embedded in these questions is what do I do if it doesn't get me what I need? Well, it's not about you, right? Your friend's behavior is about them. And your friend's job isn't to change their behavior to make you feel more comfortable or to make you happy. And maybe she's changing. Maybe she's moving away from you and doesn't know how to tell you that the friendship isn't really compatible or making sense to them anymore. I don't know. But we can assume, because this is also embedded in the question, that if we've been dating someone or friends with someone or had someone in our life for a long time, that that should mean they always are in our life. And that's unfortunately not always how it goes. Sometimes people grow in different directions or their interests change. And that's part of it. So you actually might need to start to mourn the loss that this person's drifting away from you and that that's acceptable and healthy. We can't always salvage and maintain every single relationship. That's just not honest. We're not always gonna grow in the same direction in a synchronized, parallel, compatible way. So that's in there too. What would it mean for you to lose this person? You've known him for 15 years, that's beautiful, but that doesn't promise another 15. Marriages end, friendships end, and it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's just honest. And so how do you ask her what's going on with her by just saying, Hey, you seem different. Is everything okay? And if she shuts you out and says, I don't want to talk about it or I'm fine, you have to honor that. It's not okay to force when someone sets a boundary, we have to honor people's boundaries and you have to maybe more the loss of losing this friend, you know, because sometimes these questions are actually, I want to make it better and we can't, or I want to feel okay. And so I need them to start acting healthier so I can feel okay. Well, maybe that doesn't get to be the case or, I don't want to acknowledge that maybe I'm losing this friend. Or maybe it's something you're doing. Do a little bit of a self-assessment. Are you showing up as the kind of person that they'd want to spend time with and go out in the world and do things with, right? And maybe it's also contextual. COVID's made a lot of people really anxious about going out and participating in the world. Um, I've felt that in my own life, right? I'm less interested in socialization and participation. I'm just following guidelines, taking care of myself, really enjoying introspective time. And that's just how it is. And lovingly, my friends aren't giving me any, you know, crap for not being interested in getting a mask on and going out in the world. They're kind of like, "Yeah, be where you are, you know," and and it is what it is, and we'll reconnect, you know. And they find other ways to stay close. So don't make it a bigger deal than it has to be. Ask directly and honestly. Honor the answer you get and the boundary that might be set, and maybe accept they might have to mourn the loss of losing this friend. If that, in case, is part of it, I don't know. But just make sure you are presenting as a way that you can hear truth, you know, because sometimes that's the, that's the problem. We're, we're not presenting a safe and able to hear truth. And so people withhold it from us. That's what I say to a lot of parents. You know, what kind of response do you give when they tell you something that lets you down and disappoint you? Ah, well, there's your answer, you know? So that's part of it, but I'm sorry to hear that. It's it's hard to um, have someone in our life that long and have things change, but that's life, man. It's complex and change is the one thing we can count on. Everything changes. They might change with distance and at some point they might circle back and be close again. That's kind of the natural ebbs and flows of you know, friendship and whatnot. So don't panic and allow that, but um, good luck. All right, if you got a DM for us, you can drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page and we will answer your question on our show coming up tomorrow. Going to be looking at uh, Oprah's interview with Meghan Markle, but not from the point of view of gossip because not interested in that, but from the point of view, what can we we learn about listening skills? Because uh, some really great conversations being had about how amazing of an interview Oprah was in that dynamic. Also going to be talking about some really horrifying stats around the prison system and women, and then finally closing out with uh, friends with benefits. What a beautiful thing, but how do we do it? We're going to talk about it. So join us tomorrow. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris. And uh, as always, thanks for hanging out. And y'all have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your night.